I'm Amanda Leitner, and welcome to Rochester Rising, where we amplify the stories of Rochester entrepreneurs. Welcome to episode 214 of the podcast. Rochester Rising and our weekly podcast launched in 2016 to amplify stories of Rochester entrepreneurs. We believe in something we call inspiration capital, telling real authentic stories of people building, growing, or scaling their businesses in Rochester, Minnesota, because we think if you don't see something or hear something, you don't know that it's a pathway available to you. We come out with a new podcast every Wednesday, which you can listen into on our website, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, YouTube, or really wherever you listen in to podcast content. And then the next day on Thursday, we have an article that's released based on the podcast, which you can check out on our Rochester Rising website at rochesterrising.org. And we really encourage you to check in with both the weekly podcast and our article. Rochester Rising is the storytelling arm of Collider, which is a Rochester-based nonprofit that supports early-stage entrepreneurs. On the podcast today, I had a very fun chat with Brandon Hendrickson, who is the founder of Science is Weird. We recorded this podcast a few weeks ago in person during one of the largest blizzards we've had this year here in Minnesota. The podcast was recorded wearing masks, which you'll definitely be able to hear in the podcast, especially from me, but we recorded it in person in a safe way, which was a lot of fun. I was really excited to talk with Brandon because I had heard such great things about Science is Weird and his alternative for adults called Science and Beer. Brandon is a Collider co-working member, so I had known him from working in our co-working space, which he joined during the pandemic. And since we recorded this podcast, I did get to participate in his latest Science and Beer session which was focused around answering the question, why why do clouds float? And it was very, very fun. I encourage everyone to check out the next Science and Beer. It's held on a Thursday evening once a month. So you can find information about that on the Science is Weird Facebook page. So check it out, connect and support and learn more about local entrepreneurs here in the community. Okay, so a little bit more about Brandon. So on the show today, we got to talk with Brandon Hendrickson, who is the owner of Science is Weird. Brandon is originally from Milwaukee, but he spent time in Arizona and most recently Washington State before moving with his family to Rochester last summer in 2020. He grew up with undiagnosed ADHD and actually actively avoided science classes all the way through college. He really cut his teeth in teaching, especially in homeschool teaching, while in Seattle, where he really got to experience and figure out how to make subjects fascinating to kids. What started out as a Facebook post to teach virtual lessons during spring break last year has transitioned into what is now Science is Weird, which is an online learning platform to teach the basics of science to kids in a way that Brandon did not feel he had growing up. Each Science is Weird session starts with a riddle and allows kids to work together toward the answer. This was such an engaging conversation with Brandon today as we talk about the value of experimentation, the adventure of entrepreneurship, and getting ridiculously excited about what you're doing, the value of community, and so much more. So we'll launch right into today's podcast with Brandon Hendrickson of Science is Weird. (laughs) 
thanks for coming in and doing this today in the middle of probably our worst blizzard that we've had so far. I've, I've got to say that one of the reasons that my wife and I moved to town uh, was just to take advantage of the unspeakably grand snow removal system that Rochester has. I was, it was just amazing. Driving down on Broadway, I saw driving north this phalanx of giant snow plows coming north. And like the image that I had was being a tiny piece of snow on the ground and like looking at all of these things coming at me and realized like there, there was no hope. There was no hope for me. It was like what it must have been like to be a, a soldier in the King of Persia's army, like watching the phalanxes of Alexander the Great advance or something like that. Nice job, Rochester snow removal. I think it's funny when you see the snow going in trucks down just Broadway and then it just like disappears. I think they put it in a lake in the in Silver Lake or something, but I'm not I'm not 100% sure about that and I'm sure someone's going to tell me that I'm wrong. Oh my gosh, but where does the snow go? I don't know. I've never asked that before. That could be. That's a jeez. Wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It goes somewhere. And why? Yeah, why that place? Also, like, what are the effects of having it in that place, you uh, know? Like, it, then it goes somewhere else, too, and granted, like, gravity and, like, water, like, tries to find the lowest spot, et cetera, but, like, huh, it's got to have effects, huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you're thinking. Ah, sorry, no, if I'm distracted for the entire rest of the interview, <laughs> it's like a third of my brain is working on that problem. <laughs> so, I wanted to start out learning a little bit more about you and sharing that with, with the listeners. So can you share a little bit about yourself? Where are you, where are you from? What are some of your favorite hobbies, interests, passions? So basically, what makes you, you? Ah, I know, that's a big question. I tried to direct it a little bit. Good, easy, yeah. Thank you for th- throwing me a softball at the beginning <laughs> of this. I am from Milwaukee. Uh, I was born outside of Milwaukee, and I... Uh, grew up uh, with undiagnosed ADHD, which was a joy and a pleasure at that stage of my life because my parents just sort of let me spend a bunch of time doing whatever the heck it was that I wanted to do, which for me was immersing myself in books. So just like going to the library every week and coming out with a few bags worth, right, to tote over to our minivan. Um... I, I'm always embarrassed when people ask about my hobbies. I feel like I, I read books and I talk about books and I drink beer with friends who also like to talk about books. And, and that's, that's about it. Teaching, I think, for me is a, maybe a, an outlet for all of that. Like it's a, it's a way of sort of channeling some of like the coolest things that I find out about in books um, for, for a broader audience. I used to love, I would say reading was my hobby growing yeah. up and I even had my own library and a and, um, a stamp with my name on it that said Whoa. like library of Amanda Leitner it's somewhere still like I'm sure because nothing ever disappears did you ever try to like learn the Dewey Decimal numbers so that you could put your own books in the Dewey Decimal I'm number? sure I did at one point because I loved the library like they just let me keep books at one point because what? I what? yeah when I was <laughs> in high school they just let me keep some of the books but bring them back but like we had to write a report every week on one of the presidents as we were going through. So they just let me keep the book for the school wow. year because nobody else wanted it. Wow. So yeah, I lived in the library. Before I could get a job, my mom and me volunteer in the library. Oh. So I loved it. I love books. Don't get to read so much anymore, but yeah, maybe still like 30 to 
40 a year, which isn't too bad for anything. No, that's great. That's, right. that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, um, I wrote out a list of all of the, um, the two-week periods until I turn 78, which is when actuarial tables estimate that I shall expire. Um, and I, my goal is to purchase a new book every two weeks and to choose those really well right? because I have this limited number of this Google spreadsheet and all that for that. Um, but that only puts me at 26 books or so um, a week if I'm doing that math right. Uh, or a, a, a year. year. Yeah. Yeah, like 26 a week's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the goal is like, like to read them deeply because I'm yeah. kind of limiting what I can do. Sort of like a Kanban for lifetime reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm a huge fan of the library. Love the Rochester Public Library. I probably go there once a week to get a book or something. Um, yeah, they've been a wonderful resource to have in the community. Especially during COVID, yeah. They've been wonderful. I mean, there was only like a month where they didn't have, they weren't available at all. And now, I mean, I get cookbooks there. I get DVDs there if anyone has, but I mean, there are some things you just can't find, you know, so I love it. So I wanted to ask you as well about your relationship with science. So how did you get interested in science? And I know I read, I read your story, which was wonderful. And I feel like I had a lot of the same feeling is that when I was little, and I even have a PhD in molecular biology, when I was little, I didn't get it. Didn't huh. resonate with me huh. at all. What do you think was missing for you? Well... This is probably going to sound strange, but maybe not. I think, you know, growing up in the early 90s, science wasn't for girls. Huh. It wasn't. Huh. There were no huh. role models, and it was, huh. you know, the same thing as, like, coding. That wasn't huh. even, and I didn't go to a very great high school, so none of the, like, it wasn't even an opportunity. But then I huh. went to a highly technical college, so I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but it wasn't until then that I felt science was more accessible to me yeah. as a girl growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but at that point, it, you're, it's already too late by the time you get to college. It's pretty late. I, uh, apparently, you did well enough for yourself to get a PhD in molecular I biology. Guess. Sure. <laughs> Not using it, but... If I, if I had it all to do over again, I'd go back and get a, get a uh, bachelor's degree in biology, which is this idea that I can't get out of the back of my head. At some point, like when I retire, I may go and get a bachelor's degree in biology. You could do it, yeah. You could do it on, yeah, for I, sure. I, I grew up... I, I think this is when my, like, as of, as, I think this is where the ADHD that I so in retrospect obviously had as a kid but didn't get diagnosed until I was an adult comes into it because I just got to pursue my own, you know, weird little idiosyncratic interests, which to me actually included a lot of a lot of science things, you know, dinosaurs maybe <laughs> specifically, but like, is there a Loch Ness? Is there a Loch Ness monster? Um, you know, things, things like that. Um, and, uh, and that was no part of the school science curriculum. And so in school, like when we do science, it was just, it wasn't that I had bad teachers. It wasn't that, uh, it, it, just, it just was that science was not taught in this, this, the way this, this way that caught my attention, that caught my imagination, that made me sort of passionately love it. Uh, history sort of weirdly was, and so I became a history major in college and actively avoided science classes when I was in high school and in college. Um, studied world religions, that was really interesting to everybody probably, but to, to me especially. Um, and then after I graduated, I just happened to, you know, start Start like I sort of fell into this series of books, this genre, the subgenre of books that I think a lot of people, I mean, 
the New York Times bestselling list is any sign. Uh, also really love, you know, books by, you know, like Carl Sagan, Richard Feynman, Stephen Pinker, E.O. Wilson, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, the sort of pop science books that are not dumb science books that actually do cut down really deep to what is really going on with a thing. Um, Maria Mud Ruth's book, A Sideways Look at Cloud, maybe the best book in that canon. Um, and, uh, and just like really kept wondering like why, in, why have none of the science classes that I've taken been this interesting? They, I, I got into science by reading, you know, books, my way of getting into everything, I suppose, uh, and kept wondering, like, what is it about the way that we have forged our ideas of what a science class should be that makes them, I won't, I won't even say, like, the usual things like terribly boring, right? Because oftentimes they're not terribly boring, but even, like, when they're good, they too seldom manage, like, really like, grab you by the emotions, mm -hmm and shake you and say, like, this is something important that everyone should know. Um, and then help you, like, step by step, get to a really profound, deep, wide understanding of a phenomenon. Um, so often, right, and I'm like the 10 billionth person to say this, like, but science classes fall into the trap of, um, of giving this sort of like middle level of knowledge, you know, so the answer will be surface tension. You know, uh, but it will not actually go deeper, you know, th th than that. So seldom did the science classes that I uh, did take, did they get down to, like, the really, like, deep reasons that anything happens. Yeah. We always call that, like, regurgitation. Like, you're just learning something to regurgitate an answer, but not really understanding the yeah. why. Or, like you said, feeling yeah. that emo emotional attachment yeah. to the subject yeah. and why it matters. You're just memorizing it, something to get to the next stage of whatever that is. This is where I feel like it is, <laughs> this is, this is such a, um, a, uh, a it, one of the things that makes Rochester terrifying is the realization that if I throw a pine cone, I, it is going to bounce off of the head of somebody with an MD and then bounce off the head of somebody with a PhD before it hits the ground. Or, or maybe yeah. like one person who has both of those. Yeah. This is a true story. I was <laughs> running the Med City Half Marathon a few years ago. Someone whipped out, they got a phone call or a page, whipped out their phone. They were a physician running. And they were like, I'm oh, running, I'm, they're like, I'm running <laughs> whatever, the Med City Marathon. Can I call you back? And it's like, well, I feel pretty safe. Like... If I drop over here, <laughs> one of these ten people around me will be able to take care of it. It's it's um it's see that's a situation where it's really yeah really really makes you feel safe right. Uh, <laughs> but then like saying something for me like I wasn't interested in science classes or like I I actively avoided science classes when I was in high school and college. I feel like it makes me like this doofus ignoramus around here, and yet. I feel like there has been this weird advantage that I've had to coming into these things stupid, right? Really interested in like all these different facets of science, but like really not having this careful systematic understanding of, like, for example, like why is water wet? Or like, you know, if, when I lose weight, where does the weight go, right? Which is like, I understand like are things that most of my friends who have PhDs and MDs, like you know, know off the back of their from the back of their head. But uh, for me, like to get to discover these things and to get to interrogate, you know, friends of mine who have PhDs now, um, to really understand this, like this coming at it fresh, from this kind of like childlike 
perspective, you know, because it's not like kids are dumber than the rest of us. They just have less experience and they know less. I'm, I'm quoting somebody when, when I say that. Um, so I get to sort of recapitulate the sort of childlike wonder of the world right here. You know, I just had this conversation with someone a few weeks ago about how really the best educators, they're not the experts. They're kind of the people still discovering because you're and the people with more of the inclusive creative minds because then you can actually convey that information to somebody learning the material better than if you've been an expert in this field for 20, 30, 40 years. So yeah. I think it's that perspective and that often the experts, the MDs, the PhDs, they can't teach that because they don't know how to anymore. They've kind of lost touch with how to explain that to somebody who's learning. Yeah, so. the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker calls this the curse of knowledge, which is, you know, just like once you know something so well and you forget what it's like to have no idea what all these terms mean, right? And like all these, like this, all this background knowledge that the rest of us take for, gra for granted. It's really hard to do that. Um, one of, I think the other advantages that I've had in this is that I, you teach what you know, and when what you know is the way that you've been taught a topic before in the sort of pressed out systematic, hyper-efficient way, um, then, then that's what you teach. And it's nice, the way that we structure uh, our classes is to take just one topic every month. So we just finished up cats, next month is going to be volcanoes, before that it was eyeballs, before that it was viruses, before that it was ice cream, and go in ludicrous depth of that topic. The viruses actually ended up being too broad of a one. Ice cream was great, cats was great, eyeballs was perfect. Um, and just press so deep and in every lesson, do nothing more than asking one simple question that kids usually can ask themselves, like for cats, um, one of them was, why are cats cute? And then just pressing that and not letting go until we'd found out the absolutely deep biological evolutionary um, answer to that, which is, you know, really, really complicated and wonderful. Um, but if I had, you know, learned concepts like neoteny in college uh, and learned developmental biology and embryology and evo-devo and all of those things, I, I, think, I think I would not be able to, um, to teach by just immersing so deep in one riddle, which is you know, what I get the chance to do now. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in Milwaukee, you spent a lot of time, or some time in uh, Washington State, and now we're back to Rochester. So what was kind of the journey like and what brought you back here this, this summer, right? Yeah, I the entire course of my life has been operating on the simple principle of pursue shiny objects, and I, Got, there's another JAG actually there for seven or eight years into Arizona. I got my, my couple of bachelor's degrees uh, from Arizona State. They have a really fantastic honors college because of this a really deep sort of grounding in the humanities. Um, but I went there because I got a free ride to college because I happened to do really well on my SAT. Um, and then I became an SAT coach because I didn't have a teaching degree because I had chosen my majors of world religions and uh, and, and, uh, and and history by choosing the shiniest classes for me um, and uh, and then I I realized that I just I did I wanted to do more than just teach SAT classes and so I started with the local homeschooling community in um, Washington we moved to Washington State by that point teaching just like the oddest in retrospect like classes that make no sense together, like no sort of like connective tissue between 
Okay, oh goodness. Um, world history, European history, big history, American history, um, uh, the psychology of happiness, the psychology of evil, uh, a class on the on meta-ethics, right? Like, what is it exactly philosophically that makes something wrong, wrong? And on basic mm. philosophical worldview positions, classes on world religions, classes on uh, sociology, anthropology, classes on things that I'm now forgetting. Mm. Um, but all just, like, being able to, to be in a situation in the homeschooling community inside of uh, Washington State um, where I could just, you know, choose to offer a class on something that I was really passionate about and I had the hankering that the kids would be really, really, uh, really interested in. Um, and, and uh, you know, to, to, to get to offer that. And sometimes, you know, tons of kids would sign up and it'd be really great. And sometimes very few kids would sign up and such is the life of an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, but that sort of, that sort of experience of uh, getting to cut my teach, getting to cut my teeth in teaching from this really like broad level in relatively small classes of kids who are opting in to be there, uh, in retrospect, was really fantastic training for just getting to get good at the skill of connecting something that kids only kind of know about and only kind of are interested in uh, to, to taking that and making it fascinating to them and making them really care about that subject, which is, now I get to do that with science. Sorry, you'd ask though, how, why, uh, why, um, why, why Minnesota, why, why yeah. Rochester? Um, my wife and I have wanted to homeschool since before she was pregnant, <laughs> um, and uh, we couldn't do it financially in, uh, in the Seattle area. Uh, just, you know, nothing against the Seattle area, part of what makes it really wonderful are, uh, you know, the things that, uh, that, were, that, that make other people really want to live there, and so, uh, the housing prices there were just mm. be coming through the roof. And we realized at some point, oh, we probably on two teacher salaries will never be able to homeschool. And so decided to move back to the Midwest. She's from um, various parts of North Dakota. Uh, and so Minnesota was this compromise position for us. Uh, and then we had this summer, not this last summer, but the summer before, where we just like, put our kids in the van and drove all around um, uh, southeastern Minnesota and northwestern Wisconsin and checked out a bunch of big towns and uh, camped to the south of uh, to the south of Stewartville here and uh, just really fell in love with Rochester. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that I guess the, the the one word is that the one sentence answer is to homeschool, which now we get to do, and it's wonderful for our, our specific kids. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about science is weird, and we've been mentioning it a little bit. Can you share for people not familiar with it what is science is weird, and what's kind of the big picture? Yeah. With with that. Science is weird started as. <laughs> Me throwing up on Facebook, hey, I have a week free because of my school's spring break. Would anyone like me to teach their kids a week of really intensive, awesome classes on the physics of water? And this was this summer. This was uh, this was this last spring. Last spring, yeah. okay, yeah. so 2019. 2020. 2020, yeah. okay, okay. Um, our, the school that I, my wife and I used to work at, we ran a classroom together, and I was the, uh, the curriculum architect of this little startup school outside of uh, Seattle, inside of Bellevue, Washington. 
Um, uh, we uh, were the, I believe the, I believe we tied for the second elementary school in the nation to go all virtual because of COVID. Oh yeah, I, had a, I have a friend who teaches around Seattle as well and she, they were way early. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the Life Care Center of Kirkland where a lot of the early cases in the United States yeah. were? That was, that was our block. Oh, Not that was like our upstairs neighbors who our son was best friends with their that's kid. Uh, they, they used to work there. Oh. Um, and so I you know, was very much, I think dispositionally I'm one to naturally poo-poo, you know, talk of scary things. And then when I realized it's coming from upstairs, you know, it was this really wah moment. So we, we um, and the school was an international school uh, and, and with um, a lot of Chinese population. And so we were very close, the school is very closely watching what was going on in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so we switched to being virtual. This was exciting for me because I'd never got to teach lessons before virtually, so I realized I had to come up with a whole sort of new way of teaching online. Um, and then we had a spring break week, and um, I got to teach, I got to offer up these classes uh, online to any of my friends, kids, or whatever. And, and we said we'd run the class if we had 10 kids, and we had about 30 kids <laughs> want to sign up for it. So we thought, okay, like we have something here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we sort of expanded those through the course of the spring and the summer. I found a way of just kind of regularly offering those. Um, uh, and, um, and now, like, I'm not working there anymore. Um, uh, we've moved. Uh, and, uh, and we're doing just this. So, so like, what, what, what Science is Weird classes actually are. Um, what these aspire to be, what I aspire to, to do with these, is to give a grounding in all of the beautiful basics of science that I never had growing up and that would have been really, really helpful to me as I've tried to make sense of the world since then. The way that I realized really quickly on in this that, it, that it, the only way of, of doing an online class is not, like you said, not to lecture. Mm-hmm. Because my goodness, right? Like maybe like a passionate lecturer can survive in person when you have all of the force of one's you know, potential charisma sort of on offer, but over Zoom, like this tinny sort of internet connection, mm-hmm. like everything is cut out. So you need to use like the big gears of how learning works, which for us, what we figured out is every lesson to just ask one simple riddle. So things like why is water wet? Or if you lose weight, where does it go? Or why, how much does fire weigh? Right, like the, the, the sort of question that makes you go, like, wait, what, how, n- nothing, wait, anti-nothing, right? Fire has an anti-weight because it goes up in the air. And where does the snow go? Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> to absolutely refuse to tell kids the answer mm-hmm. to that, but to make them work toward the answer. And then to drop in little hints mm-hmm. as they like struggle and fail to do things. Um, hints that are you know, usually, like again, like some of the big gears of how the mind works, um, uh, our images and our metaphors uh, and our stories, things that stick in your brain, like really like just kind of like open up sort of ways for kids, new ways for kids to think about a thing. Um, and then turning like this entire, like taking, taking this riddle and wrapping it inside of this big game where we work really intensively together uh, to figure out the answer, and I only give kids 10 seconds to unmute themselves, mm-hmm. or when I call on them to say their answer and to remute themselves. And 
Um, uh, and then I get them to instantaneously react with a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a thumbs to the side as to how they think each other's answers are. And we just like stir up, basically it's like this, I mean, what we endeavor to become in the course of this whole thing is a giant throbbing brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and often, often days, oftentimes we really succeed <laughs> at that. Um, and we, we kind of, you know, merge into this, like, bigger thinking structure. And by the end of it, the kids really have gotten to under, to gotten, achieved an understanding of, uh, of some beautiful basic uh, of, of science. Um, you know, be it particle wave duality, which no one believes this when I just tell them, tell this to them. But, like, if you, kids can actually understand. <laughs> um, uh, if you sort of approach it, by the experiments that have been done, and you offer some simple diagrams, and you get the kids to try to guess what's going to happen. Like, kids can actually understand particle wave duality um, as well as adults can. Um, and yeah, and, 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 all, and all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to be kind of progressive, is that right? That you start from like the atomic level, like with physics, and work up to like, I don't know, chemistry. Yeah. Botany, zoology, that's probably way in yep. order. Yeah, so my life was, I have a master's degree in educational theory from the University of Washington, and the, I would say that the most useful thing that came with that entire master's degree <laughs> was this one evening that I was in the academic library, and I was looking for a very specific book, and I think I eventually found it, but what happened to be like four books to the left of it on the shelf was this book called Getting It Wrong from the Beginning by a guy named Kieran Egan, who's an educational philosopher in Canada. And this book pointed out how most of our basic ideas of education that we, we even like we fight over now have not been great ideas and do not actually mesh well with all of the psychology that has been done since... I don't know, 1950, 1960 with the cognitive revolution and the effective turn in, 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 in cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology and, and, and developmental psychology. Um, and that the field is just open for new sorts of teaching and learning mm -hmm. that, um, that, that tap into how the mind really works. Um, I uh, then toured a school in Oregon that was based just on this guy's ideas. And my life was changed from that. It was, it was, it was just unbelievably amazing to sit in these classrooms where I was learning all of these amazing things about science or social, social studies, um, just like on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. Like everything was so fascinating. Um, and they, they just used this, this very simple, repeatable <laughs> sort of method for, for doing this. It's not that they had like the greatest teachers in the world. The people that they had as teachers like, weren't the greatest teachers in the world before they started using this method. Um, and realize, like, my gosh, like, this is what I want to invest my life in. You're like, this is what I want my life to be for, is the bringing it to more and more people the possibilities, opening these, poss opening these possibilities of what learning can become when you actually understand, uh, you know, some, how, 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 how minds work. Mm -hmm. This way of approaching teaching and learning opens up all sorts of new possibilities for what kids are able to learn, even from a very early age. And our ideas of what kids can learn science-wise are, are shackled by these, in retrospect, ridiculous notions of what kids are able to learn. Mm. Um, 
And so I realized, okay, like if kids can really achieve a somewhat profound understanding of you know almost any topic, well then like how would we structure the sciences? Mm-hmm. And the answer that seemed obvious to me, I guess from maybe I'm copying uh, eventually from some of the books that I've read, uh, is to build it from the bottom up, Let's go from atoms all the way up to galaxies. And so we um, uh, every month we hit some big topic, uh, like um, light or like ice cream or like viruses that starts from physics, right? Or so, you know, the atomic or the subatomic, hence light, and then moves up to molecules. So chemistry, so our, kind of our biochemistry thing this year was ice cream. Um, and then moves up to microbiology. So this time it was viruses and then moves after that to, let me get this right, to botany after that, and then to anatomy and physiology. Okay. And then to zoology, and then to uh, earth sciences, then astronomy, and then all the way back at the beginning of the next okay. year to physics again. And then because we've like every you know year started with this understanding of of atoms, because you always just gotta you know, focus on the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals, understanding how. Atoms work by, you know, subatomic relationships between uh, neutrons and protons and electrons, and uh, then building those up to talk about chemical bonds um, uh, and all of that. You, anything that you talk about later in the year, you can always then kind of build back down. You can go back down to the atoms. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm preparing for a class that starts next week, which is on um, volcanoes, which is, I really feel like one of those sort of hoary old topics that everyone learns the three different types of volcanoes and blah, 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 blah. Um, crust of the earth and mantle and the whatever. Um, and, uh, and so I did this interview beforehand with the students in class to figure out, okay, like, what do you know, what do you not know about volcanoes? And none of them could tell me why are there volcanoes? Which, you know, like... <laughs> Man, why are they, like, why doesn't the lava just stay in its place, you know? Mm-hmm. And and why is lava hot? Mm-hmm. You know, which which has to do with uh, with you know, some very big fat atoms not wanting to the protons kind of hating one another and not wanting to stick together in the center of the earth and radioactive, radioactive decay and all sorts of things that come from that. Um, and uh, but like we can we can talk about that in depth mm-hmm. of uh, of why are there volcanoes and why is lava hot because we have built it up in the sort of tower of all the sciences sitting together. Mm-hmm. So do kids typically take the whole year? Can they jump in, in during different months? Or what do you, what's the best experience? Um, the best experience is to start whenever a kid is interested in starting <laughs> to continue Fair on enough. from that. Um, eventually, um, my, my, big, my big goal, and Clyder has really factored into this, my big goal is to create four or five years of the of this curriculum, of these classes, of these videos, um, but then also, you know, you know, make the curriculum in a way that can other teachers can use too, and then go back for another five years mm-hmm. and and finalize those, teach them again, and really closely interlock all of these things. So that it can be assumed that if a kid, you know, is like in like year two or whatever, like they are, they've done all the things from year one. So you can like really gel together everything that the kids are learning to give them this operating system of, of how the world works. You know, this new way of understanding everything in the light of 21st century science. 
which which I I don't I don't know that anyone has ever done that before. If, if you ever find anyone who has, or if anyone who's listening to this does, knows this, like I would love to steal their best ideas. Um, uh, but uh, like when the science curriculum was set up at the beginning of the twentieth century. We didn't know anything. We didn't, like, we, didn't, we didn't know that there were atoms. They were just a theory at that point, and not one that was actually held in particularly high regard. We, we uh, you know, were a few years away from discovering special relativity, much less to say general relativity. Uh, we didn't know, even like uh, the modern evolutionary synthesis. Uh, we, didn't, we weren't that close to that. Uh, evolution in some important ways was still a theory until like the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and, and now that we know all this, and now that all the sciences have, have, have knit themselves together, have gelled together, um, now we actually have this amazing opportunity. Just, I mean, I say this as, like, as a society, right? To like, go back and revisit what can we do with this whole thing that we call the science education in elementary school uh, and see it as a way of, of really preparing kids to understand everything that comes after that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what you do is really hands-on, too. As I was seeing something about, I think it was, why is fruit sweet or something? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like everyone had to bring like a watermelon or a piece of fruit, maybe, because I, I think this was like a few weeks ago, so there probably was no watermelon anywhere. <sighs> but like... So, so you'd asked before about the, the, the kind of the different offerings that we have. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we have, we have three kind of different things going on for kids. Uh, one of them is this big course that we do, and it's a two-day-a-week three-week-a-month uh, thing where we go like, up this sort of tower of the sciences um, and, uh, and go ridiculously deep into these, these really deep, wonderful topics. Um, then on the, on the weekends, we just do, we realize just right, like from a small business perspective, we need, that the hardest thing for us to do was find some way of, it, of, of showing parents, showing kids, showing families what it is that we're doing. you got to get the teaser to draw people into the paid content, right? Yeah, and yeah. It, because what we do is so hyper-interactive, screens on, kids like throwing their arms and thumbs up and down in the air and fingers and all these things. That's really interesting. How do you explain it? You we, and we can't yeah. show it either because we've taken this really hard stand on never using... Um, uh, videos or images of kids in mm-hmm. our business to market, mm-hmm. to advertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, how then do we get people to understand what we're doing yeah. at all? Like, the words like, really don't do it justice, right? Like, what I'm saying right now does not, does not really, like, does not really capture like, what goes on. So we just realized that, okay, like, just, like, doing, like, a once a weekend, you know, like, free bite of what we're mm-hmm. doing. Call them science bites. Um, and we have this kind of rotation of, uh, of biochemical evolutionary sort of things where uh, the one that you may have seen was um, uh, Why is Fruit Sweet? Um, mm-hmm. the, the, without terribly spoiling it, it's that. Um, mother plants, right? And like the idea of a mother plant is not a concept that kids usually <laughs> have in their head at the end no, of it, right? No, but no. plants actually do come in like mothers and fa- like mother and father, like they, they have sexes, they have genders. Um, uh, that mother plants, uh, unlike mother mammals, um, want to get their kids as far away from themselves as possible. Um, partially to take over the world, because right, this is what genes do, um, but also because uh, if you uh, raise your baby under your shadow, right, like, um, like a good mammal mother might, might sometimes want to do, uh, you will murder it. Um, and so like, uh, plants have all these, like, uh, sorry, 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 I'm going to the, the, the but, like, like, So fruit is sweet in order to, I guess I am giving the, the answer to this. Fruit is sweet because, um, you know, some enterprising uh, plant um, back in the eh, early Cretaceous, mid-Cretaceous, because um, flowering plants started then, and fruit is a type of flower, um, that they, um, uh, they figured out that what they could do 
is hiring Uber to take their babies away, right? Like, like, like offering animals the only kind of money that animals want, which is sugar, which is energy from the sun. Sure. Um, and they they offer it to them uh, on the on the you know quid pro quo that the, uh, the animal will swallow their babies, <laughs> and then walk around and then poop them out. Uh, uh, and like, like, so right. This is like a. This contains like a bunch of like ideas of evolutionary biology and biochemistry, um, and you can like do it all within one hour with kids, and it's like fairly vivid, easy to remember way. Um, just by asking a simple question and, and, and pursuing the answer, you know, no holds bar. And then you do this kind of with adults too. I don't know if it's the same thing. I know you have no. one tonight: science and beer. Right? Yes, next science week. Science and yep. beer. Yeah. Next week. Okay. Yep. Oh, that's right. Okay. The next one's on the 11th, correct? That's, or the 13th, it's whatever the next, like, Thursday, next Thursday is. Sometimes I thought it was tonight, but it is not, it is not, yeah. So <laughs> once a month, we, we realized that it would be fun to offer the same thing for adults who might like, you know, just like have that itch of yeah. geeking out about science. Like whether they know a lot about science or know nothing at all about science. Um, and so for free, once a month uh, on Thursdays, um, we uh, offer this, we call it science and beer. Um, mm-hmm. And we offer it just to adults for free. And we just do the same thing with them as we do with kids. We take just some of our most fun lessons and do that with them. We just make it a game and all that. Um, if anyone who's listening is interested in this, we actually don't have it linked on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't, we're kind of nervous, just like Yahoo's kind of weird, coming yeah, in, kind of right? The kids stuff. I saw it on Facebook when I was looking through, and I've heard such wonderful things from everybody, from kids taking the science is weird, and oh. then the adults doing the science and beer. So, so if anyone is interested, you can go to sciencesweird.com slash science and beer, okay. all one word, and like I can trust. I can't. Should, should I trust everyone who's listening to this podcast? Um, who knows? Let's see what happens. It's too late. Let's go for it. (laughs) The die is cast. (laughs) But yeah, I have to try that next time. I actually thought it was tonight, so next week would be better. (laughs) The one that we're asking, too, is um, why do clouds float? And you think, oh, they're very light. But like, 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 like the way, like your average cumulus cloud weighs about as much as 100 elephants. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and like there's a there's a one word answer that like I think people who are like really science savvy will know. Um, but but what does that mean and how does that work? I, I won't say the word here. Uh, mm-hmm. Right? Like like once you start asking those questions, oftentimes we find that our understanding is just you know like verbiage deep, vocabulary deep, no deeper than that. We can mm-hmm. get to the bottom of it though. Yeah. No, it sounds like fun. I am gonna try it next time. Science is weird. Is that your? Is this your full thing now? You know, are the, you teaching? The, <laughs> the the hilarious thing is that, I mean, this just started. Like I said, as this thing I posted on Facebook this one day, um, early on in the pandemic, the plan had been to beef up the SAT coaching business that I've done. I, I've spent, you know, like 14 years as an SAT tutor, and it took me, like, a long time to get really, really good at it. And, um, but then, like, when the pandemic, so I, when, when we decided to move, we thought, okay, like, let's, like, really ramp this up, like, let's hire um, a project manager, 
let's hire uh, an executive assistant to like really like be able to work as part of a team to like make this a big thing. I focus on just kids with uh, who have ADHD um, uh, for for test prep, and I think I'm one of the two people in the country who who do that. Mm. Um, so it's cool. Like I found my niche and all of that, and then all of a sudden. Woo, the tests began to be canceled left and right, and I realized, oh my gosh, like my family will starve if I do not, if I don't find something else to push myself into. But then, once having pushed myself into the science, um, you know, realized that man, like, I do not want world's greatest SAT coach on my tombstone, <laughs> uh, right? Like, I, I want to work towards something that is bigger and more game-changing, more world affirming and society bending than that. Um, that is all a way of saying that I'm still actually doing some SAT coaching okay, and ACT well, coaching on the side from that. So I feel from learning about you, interacting with you a couple times and learning more of your backstory, you know, I feel like a lot of your career, there's been a lot of um, kind of uh, focused experimentation. Huh. Would it be you, you should talk to my mom. It sounds like a great, it's a great phrase to put on that. Yeah. That's fantastic. With, with what you are doing with the kids and really challenging them to, to, to do that and to think critically and with your, your SAT business. I believe you and your wife had a school as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah. How do you view an experimentation and its value in life and learning and just your journey as a person. I realized a few months ago how deeply I believe in experimentation. When I had a class, a specific lesson on a Monday morning totally go south on me and I had no idea why and I was ecstatic. And I realized, man, like, apparently I really, like, have drunk the Kool-Aid and seen everything that I do in my life as an experiment because this would have, this would have crushed me, you know, like, for the rest of the afternoon or whatever, like, if it had, had, had happened to me a couple of years ago. I feel like that's how most people are. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I, like, I, the reason that I love doing what I do is, like, the buzz, just like, like, like to, to use the drug term, the high that you get when you are learning something new and that I get when I am helping a class learn something so exciting, right? Like we're at the end of their lesson, right? The goal always, with you know, I said this with my fingers crossed here, is to have their jaws literally like, like drop open and they go, what? That is what, that is why cats are cute or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, uh, and when that doesn't happen, it's, 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 Still kind of crippling uh, and horrific, um, but but uh, yeah, like I, I realized like how much into this like whole like everything is an experiment and I'm not, like the experiments are not good experiments when I am succeeding at doing all of the, at, at, at all the lessons. Like mm. if, if there's something that I'm doing wrong, I, you know, maybe it's something that I've done before and that's a bad thing. <laughs> um, but like when there's an actual like a novel mistake that I'm making, like holy poop, right? Like now I get to learn something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think maybe even more sort of broadly, like everything that I've done over the last couple decades has been an experiment because I am just hungry to find out. <laughs> I'm hungry to do new things, right? Um, hence a life of a constant entrepreneurship. 
Um, but also, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry to, I like your word focused uh, experimentation. I'm hungry to, you know, like find like what is like the one best method, at least for me, of doing X. And I'm never happy unless I'm working closer and closer to that. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a really great book right now called Bravey by Alexi Pappas. I haven't even heard of this book. It just came out um, in 2021. I actually just got it from the library. <laughs> and it's just a wonderful book um, about, she's an Olympic runner, long distance runner um, in Eugene, so kind of that area, yeah. Oregon, California. Now they're in LA or whatever, but she's a writer, um, experienced extreme trauma growing up but just talking about you know if you like goal setting and that experimentation and that you know basically if you're succeeding all the time your goals aren't big enough yeah you know yes yes and that it's okay to not reach them because that means you were trying really hard yeah and there's Nothing wrong with not getting there. Yeah. That means you were dreaming big enough. Yeah. You know, it's a wonderful book. I read it, for me, pretty fast in like a week. So I highly recommend it, except I have the only copy right now. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I kept, I kept thinking like, should I just put a hold on it right now as she's talking? And I thought that's, that's actually maybe well, egregiously it, rude. So it has to go back. <laughs> it has to go back in another week anyway. So it's, it's a very, very good book. Very sad, but very funny. And she was in... Um, the Dartmouth improv group, the same thing as like Mindy Camp. Oh, yeah. And um, I believe uh, t- not Tina Fey. Who am I thinking of? No, because that's the one in. Um, no, Tina Fey was uh, was New York based, right? And, uh, it was. Oh, who am I thinking of? She, Maya Rudolph. No, nowhere near similar except for SNL. <laughs> but Maya Rudolph, I believe, is the other uh, Dartmouth. Uh, Improv Brigade. Oh, I thought you said Dark Nymph. I oh, thought it was like a cool, like, Dark West Coast name. It's oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got no, it. it's the mask. Dark Myth. <laughs> yeah, so for everybody who's listening to this at home right now, we actually sound much clearer than this. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great book. Highly this recommend is, it. This is one of the things that I'm always... I always tell the students in the class that I will not tell them the answer. And that is, like, in a certain restricted way, absolutely true. Like, I never, like, just come out and tell them the answer. And then, like, the question for me, I, I guide them, right? And I, oftentimes I just lie to them. Like, if they're getting too close to the thing, like, I will tell them something that is purposefully misleading uh, to make them, like, work harder mm. at it and understand a deeper level of what is going on. Um, but uh, but I, I always I always look wonder like should I should I not be even telling them the answer at the end of class right because what I'm trying to do it perhaps sounds stupid but but, but I ask it because what I'm trying to do is have them experience science as an adventure from the vantage point that's not terribly dissimilar from the fir- from the people who first figured this stuff out. And right, so I help them scale this mountain, but in order for it to be scary, there have to be stakes. We have some stakes for the gamification of how we do the riddle and blah, blah, blah. But it seems like the biggest stakes possible is that they don't know, <laughs> that they don't learn 
what the answer is un until, you know, later I, I sent up this PDF after every class that like reviews what the class is, whatever. They had to wait for that. Um, so to, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to think about how I, how I can make it more of an adventure for them. I think that's true even, I don't want to say in adult science, but even in like research-based science, you know, one of my family members asked me once, well, how do you know when you're right and when you're done? And like, you're never, you're never right. And you're only right until someone proves you wrong. Yeah. Like, I don't think anything's necessarily right. It's just your best guess with the tools that you have before you. Yeah. To get to that conclusion doesn't mean you are right. Yeah. But when you have multiple pieces of evidence suggesting that, then okay, until someone proves it wrong. Yeah, Karl Popper, right? Falsifiability and all and all oh, of that. Yeah. yeah. I uh, uh, which I this is one of the things that I, I now I feel guilty for not having gone into Karl Popper and uh, in philosophy of science like that for the for the kids. Maybe at some point I I'll need to do a unit and it's kind of like the scientific method is weird. Uh, uh, where we actually look at like how is that scientists actually work mm -hmm. at that. I could probably uh, do a really good job interviewing you and Jamie uh, together. And, oh jeez, you probably don't want to do that. <laughs> Give me senses of that. Do you find that? Um, you, sorry, you you are an entrepreneur, right? And you have been an entrepreneur for a long time. Am I correct about that? For at least six, seven, eight years. Okay, sure. Okay, yeah. Do you did you get in in it for the adventure? Absolutely. And I find that I am a person that needs freedom and flexibility to explore. Yeah. And if someone tells me what to do, I have a very, very hard time with that. Yeah. And I used to think that was wrong <laughs> because that's how life around me was structured, <laughs> that someone told you what to do at your work and you did it. And I've come more and more, and even science actually fit that well because no one tells you what to do yeah you just experiment yeah like no one tells you this is how i mean they help guide you but no one tells you so i think that was a large part of it just um wanting to have that freedom and flexibility to succeed or to fail and then it was on you it's not on anybody else yeah so that was really what my drive to do this was is that I can't follow a traditional path. I mean, if I have to, to pay bills at some point, I'll do it until that phase is done. Yeah. But I, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, and so I was raised just with the assumption that I would start a business or two or ten. <laughs> um, and I, I sometimes think, like, oh, like, what would my life be like if I just, like, took my curriculum architecture jobs or, or skills and, and actually got a job doing, doing it? And I have a friend who um, uh, is a curriculum architect and got a job at Amazon and really, like, makes a lot of money. And in some ways, his life is much less stressful than mine is, um, but I, I don't think that I could do it because it wouldn't give me that sense of adventure. Every night before I go to bed, I write down on a whiteboard what it is I'm excited to go wake up and do <laughs> in the morning. And then like I roll out of my bed and I go, yes, let's do this. And usually it's like crafting a lesson, you know, that is like the, the greatest lesson I can possibly teach on mycology or, or on uh, opsins and how, you know, the retinal molecules in the eye actually crack and that is what actually causes you to see um, or whatever. 
Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it if I was just having to do what somebody told me to do. And if I wasn't able to get ridiculously excited, which, you know, like one of the classes that I teach that I didn't mention before is, uh, is narrative theory, right? How does a good story work? This is actually one of the things I had to learn in order to teach the SAT really, really well. Cause there's some stories you have to read in there. And, like how do you quickly make sense of a really deep story and actually fall in love with the story, empathize with the characters and all that. Um, and, uh, the thing that I tell, you know, I, I, I asked, do you mind if I pretend that you're a high school student? Go ahead. What makes a story good? I think when you can see yourself in the story. So, let me try this. Amanda woke up one morning and she put on her glasses and she put on her sparkly face mask. <laughs> For those of you at home right now, you cannot see that Amanda's wearing both glasses and a sparkly face mask. every day. And she went downstairs. I, I don't know how many, how many levels your domicile has. Uh, went, went downstairs and, she, and she, she went to the kitchen and she made what she made every single morning and she picked it up out of the cabinet and she ducked the bowl out and she put it down. This is a boring story, right? But yeah. you can see yourself in this character who just happens to be similar in a few superficial ways to you. So, so what else is it that that makes a story like actually engaging, even if the person has virtually nothing to do with you? I think it's the emotional tie. Sorry, emotional what? Uh, an emotional tie or draw into the story. What what, what does that look like? Or how how does an author connote that? How does an author um, bring that? Up? I think making someone be able to feel what that person is feeling. Yeah. So empathy. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, that's, no one's ever said that answer before. That's really good. I, I, that's I'm, how we teach our pitching. I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering, huh, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, so how do you, how do you, um, like when you teach people who are pitching then, like how do you, how do you tell them to do that? We tell them to, uh, basically make people feel the problem, feel the pain of having the problem. Yes, yes. <laughs> so this this is what I tell my students is find the suffering, mm-hmm. <laughs> find what the person wants, and then find like the gap, mm-hmm. the chasm that is between them and their wants. Um, uh, right, like let me pick someone who's not you, um, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara woke up and she turned the light on but could not see anything, and she like moved her hand over to touch the light switch and could not get it. And mm-hmm. she was confused. And she, then she happened to brush, or the side of her hand happened to brush the front of her face. And she felt that there was something on her face. And it was stiff. And it was hairy. And right, right, like right now, like this is an interesting story, even yeah. though you were not she. And, and I realized when, um, in, in entrepreneurship, right, we talk about like we want to go on this adventure. Like, like, like they do in stories, like they do in adventure stories. And it turns out that the essence of making a good adventure story, a really good story of any kind, is to have the protagonist suffer. That's <laughs> so true. And this is the other side of, right, like, why some days I wish I had decided to go work for as a curriculum architect at Amazon. Yeah. Um, we, um, uh, we had, uh, well, not just us, like the entire industry, 
um, of online teaching, right? Worldwide online teaching um, uh, spiked up, as you might imagine, over the course of the summer. Um, and then what you might not know is that it just tanked, just like reached rock bottom between August and September. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, like kids going back to school, obviously, but also like among homeschoolers, it, it, it did that. Even among like unschoolers, it did that. Um, Zoom fatigue is another sort of hypothesis, but it doesn't really explain all the things. It's still like a mystery in my mind to exactly what happened there. Um, but you know, like in September and October, like we were making very, very little money. It was not a sustainable thing. And we've climbed up since then, um, which is great. It's, just, it's really great to be high on the hog again. Um, uh, we just set our own record for the amount of money that we were making in a month, which just feels That's so awesome. sustainable. That's you great. Know? Um, uh, uh, but... But, yeah, this is the other side of entrepreneurship. For anyone who's listening who's thinking, like, well, I'm on the fence as to whether I wish to become an entrepreneur or not. Like, you, maybe like, the question that you should ask yourself is, how do you react to suffering? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, can you, like, take it and, like, swing it and accept it either stoically or ironically or whatever and see it as a potential learning opportunity and know that your job as the protagonist is to experience agony, right? Like the word protagonist means the first suffer, the first in suffering, the first in agony. Um, and if you can do that, then then you uh, you might love entrepreneurship. I think that's so true. It's so <laughs> true. So I'll ask you a last question, sure. kind of along those lines. You know, you said you started this this summer. Maybe hit a little bit of a dip in the fall, but now it's really yeah. growing. Yeah. What what's that been like to do that in this community here, and how has the community supported that? Oh my gosh! I mean, like in retrospect, we could not have chosen a better city to move to than Rochester. If we would have known that when we were back a year and a half ago uh, choosing uh, towns, we just would have went Rochester. Don't even look at the other ones. Just Rochester. Just Rochester. Um, partly because um, uh, there's so much scientific knowledge here, right? Like this place just oozes uh, deep understanding of chemistry and of microbiology. Mm-hmm. Um, but not just that, right? Like I'm, I'm interviewing somebody um, in the community who trained as a geologist next oh, week cool. and sort of helped in sort of fine-tuning the, the volcanoes class. Um, uh, so that's great. Um, Collider is so good. <laughs> Um, Collider has been, for me, like, I guess everything that the name advertises, right? It has been this, this, this place, this, this milieu, even when it's not a physical place, uh, of, of just smacking together with other really fantastic and interesting people in the community. Um, uh, Jamie is a one-man spider. I just, like, imagine, like, him, right? Like, the center of, like, this giant web of people that he is eager to connect uh, together. Um, we have gotten you know, a number of like, specific clients, right? Uh, families um, um, signed up for classes uh, from, from uh, Rochester and elsewhere mm-hmm. um, because of Collider. Um, but also like opportunities to go and speak at schools uh, and do school big events like, to run these sort of games for, for entire schools. Um, uh, and just like a... You know, like you need your cheers. You need your you need your sort of your third place where mm-hmm. you can make friends with people, kind of oddball people, kind of serious people, kind of frivolous people, just all sorts of people. Those um, sad protagonists. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, protagonists who are on the top of the world, right? You, like in different different days of the week, 
Um, just a fantastic, like, if, if sorry, do, do, do people listen to this podcast who are interested in becoming entrepreneurs? Am I, am I, am I, am I, like, main I, audience. Oh, great, very good, very good. So, so the sense that I, that I got. Um, my goodness, what are you doing if you have not done a part of Collider? It is cheap to get a floating, a virtual chair, whatever we call them. It is cheap to do it, and it is so good. Um, that, is, that, is my, that is my voice. That's my picture. And you started here when it was very slow. I mean... <laughs> Usually this place was packed. Yeah. So. yeah. so I hear. So everybody tells me. I don't, I don't know. I, uh, someday, maybe in the fall, not maybe, in the fall, yeah. it'll be like that again. So, yes. Well, this was such a great conversation. This today. is fun. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, yeah. For people listening, where can they find Science is Weird? Where's the best place for them to go? Scienceisweird.com. All, All right. Yeah. And science and beer on Facebook, right? Uh, uh, Sciencesweird.com slash science and beer, all one word, is probably the easiest place to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for this conversation, Jake Brandon. What a fun conversation with Brandon today. You can find out more about Science is Weird in the show notes. So check it out and learn more about this local business. We have many more stories of entrepreneurship on our website at rochesterrising.org. So check out more stories like Brandon's there. And we come out with a new podcast every Wednesday. So make sure that you are subscribed and never miss any of our podcasts, learning more about entrepreneurship and the culture of business development here in Rochester. All right, that's a wrap for us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for tuning in and spending a little bit of your time today with us. We would really, really appreciate if you subscribe to this podcast and rate this podcast so that others can find it. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll be here next Wednesday with a brand new episode.